This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. I've been in here for, I can tell you exactly, 11,945 days, okay? 11,945 days I've been in here, you know? And um, it hasn't been easy. A <laughs> hundred years? That's memory. I'm a kid. I didn't do anything, you know? And, uh, you know, that was uh, that was real painful, man. You know, because my life was discarded as if, you know, like I was a piece of trash or something. You know, a hundred years, and I had dreams, and I wanted to do things. I wasn't committing crimes, you know? I was a very good young man. That is what happens in so many cases. The cops have a hunch because they're so smart at the scene. They have a hunch. And once they act on that hunch, they sort of develop tunnel vision and they take off marching in the wrong direction. And that happens in so many of these wrongful convictions. They opened the, the, uh, the cell door and I walked downstairs and I actually walked downstairs to, to be outside. It felt very strange to be, like I said, to be walking without no shackles on my feet. I thought it was a dream, but then again, it wasn't a dream. This is wrongful conviction. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On March 18, 2001, Jamie Penich, an American exchange student in South Korea, was brutally murdered in her motel room after a night of partying with friends from the program. Her bloodied, nude body was found on the floor. She had been stomped to death, and her face was covered with a black fleece jacket. Kenzie Snyder, a 19-year-old exchange student from Marshall University in West Virginia, was one of the friends that Jamie was with. About a half dozen exchange students had traveled from campus into the city where they celebrated St. Patrick's Day in a bar filled with locals and U.S. soldiers. Korean police and army investigators were unable to solve this horrific crime. But a year later, in February 2002, FBI agents contacted Kenzie out of the blue. She was back in school by now in West Virginia, and they wanted to talk, alone. She met with three agents on three consecutive days for several hours, and the sessions were grueling. When it was done, 
Kenzie had confessed. She murdered her friend, she said, in the context of a drunken sexual encounter. Kenzie was promptly arrested, incarcerated in a local jail for 10 months, and extradited to Korea to stand trial. There, she spent another six months in jail until a panel of judges found her not guilty. But the prosecutor appealed the verdict, and months later, an appeals court confirmed, not guilty. In 2006, five years after the crime, in response to yet another appeal, the Supreme Court of Korea once again affirmed not guilty. That was 18 years ago. Today we know a whole lot more than we did then about false confessions. Kenzie Snyder has been fully acquitted in court, yet her confession haunts her and us, and it leads some people still to question her actual innocence. Kenzie Snyder Brown is here with us today to tell her story. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today is going to be a really interesting day here in the studio at Wrongful Conviction headquarters because we have a number of firsts and one uh, second, um, which is that uh, I'll go to the second first. We have the distinguished professor of psychology and world-renowned expert on false confessions, Saul Kasson, with us today. Saul, welcome. Pleasure to be here. We also have as a special treat, a PhD student of his, Patty Sanchez, a PhD student at John Jay, who amazingly is studying the effect of podcasts on jurors and on public opinion, right? And so I'm super uh, excited to have Patty Sanchez here to learn from you. So Patty, welcome. Thank you very much. And the star of our show, um, who has an incredible story to tell, uh, the first case we've certainly ever had from well, even from the Far East, but from Korea, but not the first false confession case by far, but the first case of this kind, and a really interesting person in her own right, Kenzie Snyder. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, Kenzie, um, this is a crazy, crazy case. I mean, they're all crazy, but yours is so nuts. Um, and we're going back 18 years now, 2001. You were a 19-year-old girl in a faraway land who was accused of brutally beating and stomping your friend, your roommate, to death. And you don't look like somebody who would stomp a fly to death. I mean, I don't, don't judge a book by its cover, but, I mean... <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not that kind of person. Yeah, you seem like a pretty gentle soul to me. Um, but let's go back to the beginning. And, and Saul, jump in whenever you want. I mean, obviously, you've been you know involved in this case and so many others yeah. like it. Um, do you want to go back and give us a little of the history? Well, you know, uh, 18 years ago, people really knew nothing about false confessions. But Kenzie's case caught my attention for a few reasons. One, she was a college student, as you say, you know, halfway around the world. And uh, the case made no sense to come back to her a year later. The case was unsolved. Pressure was on the law enforcement and the FBI to solve it. And they came back to Kenzie to interrogate her. And when I read that she confessed, what caught my interest was not just that she agreed to sign a confession. She actually came to believe in her own guilt. She had formed a memory that they enabled, that they facilitated, uh, using police interrogation tactics that are highly suggestive and yet lawful in the United States. And so my interest in this case started with the fact that there she was, a college student, 20 years old at the time that the FBI came and interrogated her, three agents in a motel room in West Virginia, asking her to come alone. And for three consecutive days, they interrogated her. They lied to her about the evidence. 
They tinkered with her memory. And so what caught my attention was the fact that not only did she confess, she internalized the belief in that confession, which makes it very, very hard for people later to get past it. So, Kenzie, you are an American person mm -hmm. on home soil in West Virginia. It doesn't get too much more American than that, I guess you could say, right? Heartland <laughs> stuff. But you were being interviewed on your home turf by people who you would have, I think, thought would have your back. Like, was there even an extradition treaty in place? Like, how did this uh, happen? The extradition treaty itself was brand new. It had just been, I think, formulated between the two countries in 1998. And so... The crime itself happened in Korea, and all the suspects were Americans. And so the U.S. and Koreans were trying to work together. It wasn't going very well, and that's why um, the FBI became a liaison. And, and Jason yeah. Kenzie Snyder became the first American first. ever extradited to Korea. Wow. A brand new extradition treaty in 1998. I am the first. I believe I am the only, but I don't know that for sure. What a dubious distinction that is. It's important to recognize there's a political context to this story. When the Korean police and army investigators failed to solve the crime, you know, there is a victim, and the victim was American. Her name was Jamie Penich, and she was from Pennsylvania. And her parents, as you can imagine, I can't even begin to imagine, were incredibly upset and wanted this crime solved. Senator Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania met with Korean authorities to pressure them to solve this crime. Because right. they're, you know, there is that. We're Americans, and we're supposed to be in this together to solve the crime of another American victim. And I don't know what they knew about the details of the case, but in my view, I think they believe they were acting on behalf of the family of the victim. Yeah, and Kenzie, I mean, it must have been surreal, first of all. Like, who would ever think that, you know, your roommate would turn up as, as a corpse, right, and in such a brutal fashion... Um, that alone is a real-life nightmare. But then you're back in West Virginia, you know, I'm sure dealing with some trauma related to this, but moving on with your life. And along come these three FBI agents out of nowhere. And I can't imagine at that age, when your brain's not even fully formed, right? You're still, right. we know the, the adolescent brain doesn't fully switch over, so to speak, right, until you're around 25. What was going through your head? I had come back to West Virginia, and I was working with um, troubled youth, and um, I was just trying to get my feet back underneath me again because, as you said, it is a traumatic experience. And then the FBA called me and asked if I could help them further the investigation. So I had gone to the hotel room that day to talk to them to help them, not realizing what they had planned. So, yeah, okay, that's a common thing, too. And, you know, Patty, I want you to jump in here whenever you want, because I know you're knowledgeable about this case and about this subject. That's sort of a common thing as well that we hear in these wrongful conviction cases, is that when the interrogation, whether it's local police or FBI agents or whatever, often they don't tell you that you're a suspect, right? And right. this way you're more inclined to be open. And as Kenzie was, she wanted to be helpful. Anyone would want to be helpful. But that instinct can really lead you astray. For sure, especially when you're not even at a police station or anything like that. So she was at a hotel. So the lines are blurred even further as to the purpose of my even talking to these agents. You know, she was never even realized that she was a suspect until she had already been talking for at least a day so, yeah, it is a problem that it's not always clear to a suspect that they're a suspect, and then they can invoke their right to a lawyer if you don't know 
you're being questioned as a suspect. So, And some people listening would probably wonder whether that's legal for them to take her to a hotel or motel room. I mean, it sounds at a minimum unusual, right? Yes. And I don't know if it's more or less disorienting than being in one of those the rooms that you always see on TV, right? The interrogation rooms, the windowless, you know. Um, it just seems odd. I mean, a motel room, there's a bed, there's a TV. It's like, it, uh, it feels just odd. Yes, it feels odd. And all of the red flags that normally would go up, she's not technically in custody, so they don't have to Mirandize her. So I'm trying to picture this, Kenzie. So you're interrogated for that first day for hours and hours, I assume, right? It wasn't an interrogation. Well, it was just questioning and getting together and seeing how your day was, how was your year. Um trying to see how I'd been sleeping, you know, if I'd had any repercussions from seeing her body, um, and just trying to be my friend. It was, your, it was your sense that they cared about you. Yeah, they wanted to see how I was doing. It had been a year, no one had checked up on me, and they were just checking up on me. At one point, one of the investigators said that he thought of me like a sister. Hmm. And then the second day, did it become clear to you that they had a different idea or motive or what do you want to call it? Partway through the second day. The second day still started with friendly conversation. I brought ice cream because <laughs> I thought they were my friends. And we had ice cream and talked about, um, they'd asked me to do a homework assignment when I left the first day, uh, writing out everything that I had gone through that night, the sequence of events. And then we were just reading that and having ice cream when we first got there in the hotel room on the second day. That's sort of weirdly chilling to me. I mean, and chilling, no pun intended, but even still, I mean, it feels a little sick, right? The idea yeah. of you bringing the ice cream and ice cream having, you know, it's not something you do with people that you aren't well acquainted with in right. general, right? It reminds us all of our youth, right? Uh, my trips to Baskin Robbins and whatnot, but that's beside the point. So, Saul, what do you think was really going on here? Like, was this was this all scripted? Did they was, come in? This was and, scripted. So they had the idea before they went in the first day, we're yeah. going to gain her trust, right? We're, we're going we're gonna to be friendly. We're going to establish rapport. We're going to gain her trust. Um, that sounds like a very reasonable tactic for an interrogator to use, and it is. But now look at the nefarious side of establishing rapport in that way and gaining her trust as a predicate for what will happen on day two. So if you think of day one as just a friendly interview, she comes back into day two, they ask her to return, and she does alone. She comes back day two with ice cream, but what she doesn't realize is day two is not going to be an interview anymore. It's going to be an accusatory interrogation. And it's going to be the kind of interrogation where they accuse her with certainty. We know you did this. They're going to lie about evidence. They're going to point to apparent contradictions, and they're going to tinker with her memory. From a psychological perspective, here's the problem. They gained her trust, and then they exploited that trust that they gained. Because when you have somebody's trust, you become a credible source. So when, when somebody you trust becomes credible, and that person of credibility starts to lie about the evidence, you almost have no choice but to believe the lie and wonder, well, I don't know how I can reconcile that information you just gave me with the fact that I don't remember things that way. So they gained their tr her trust on day one as a predicate for manipulating her on day two. A and of course, at some point on day two, when it becomes clear that she's not a witness but a suspect, it would seem to me at some point the alarm bells would go off and you'd realize, I need help. In the second day, um, shortly after we got there, after we you know read the statement and had our ice cream, 
um, we'd gone over the statement a little bit and they asked if they could show me something and they showed me some like a little video of the hotel room and walked around in it so I could see it better and then they had uh, like a photo album of some of the crime scene photos and when we're looking at them they were saying I can't remember the phrasing but at one point I asked are you saying I did it and they just kind of looked at me and shrugged and um, at that point I knew that I needed to get out of the room I asked them if I could leave and I went out of the hotel room and I was only gone a few seconds um, and I came back in and I asked, I said, do I need to get a lawyer is what I asked. And they said, if you get one, we can't say that you cooperated. Wow. That's uh, some reverse psychology there too, isn't it? Right. That was a very well chosen phrase. I mean, um, you know, not in terms of justice, but in terms of if, for what the goal was that they were trying to get, which was a confession, that would be the perfect thing to say. Because now you're disoriented. You don't know. There's no right answer to that. Right. I mean. And we see this in false confessions, right? They sort of create this trap with words where there is no door that's open. And so you have to choose between bad options. It's like, which kind of cancer do you want, right? Right. I'm actually sitting there like, I want to go back in time and pull you away and say, don't go back there, right? Like, don't go. Well, I wish I could have. When I left the room, I understand that they were afraid that I wouldn't come back in because it would have been over for them. Um, so I wish I wouldn't have gone back in the room. Um, but when I did... You know, they said, if you get a lawyer, then we can't say that you cooperated. Then we sat down, and I was sitting in, like, the easy chair in the hotel room, so a comfortable seat, and I was tired from work the day before and then staying up late doing the homework assignment that they asked for and uh, waking up early again to go to work before this. Um, so I was sitting in the chair, and they brought in an FBI agent um, who specialized in this field, and he said, we can do this two ways. We can either do it the hard way or the easy way. And I said, well, let's do it the easy way, and that way you'll know I didn't do this and we can get on with our day. So he said, well, let's go through the events and emotionally. Talk about how we feel when we were you know, at the bar and when you were drinking and how did you feel when you were walking home with Jamie on your arm. And then um, we got to the part where, where she was undressing to take a shower when I left her, and they were trying to get into how I felt about that. And I was like, well, I'm... I'm fine. I said I was helping her out, and now I'm leaving. And they said, well, this isn't working. Let's do it the hard way. And so they would ask me these questions, um, like direct questions. So what was she wearing when you left her? And, and I said that she was in her bra and her underwear to take the shower, and they said, no, that's not right. And I remember sitting there, and I'm like, but she was. Like, I have memories of her. I have memories of what she was wearing when I left her. <laughs> Excuse me. And they said, no, that's wrong. And I remember referencing back to the photos that they had shown me. And one of them was her pants with her underwear inside of them. And I was like, well, in my head, I said, well, obviously she did take them off at some point. So I said, in the bathroom, because that's where the picture was taken and her underwear was in her pants. So obviously it had happened, even though that's not what she looked like when I left her. But it was like this wedge that opened up the floodgates of me doubting the memories that I had had and replacing them with this um, like multiple choice questioning that they were giving me. And if I gave them an answer that they didn't like, then they'd say, no, that didn't happen. They'd ask me a new question. They didn't like that answer. No, that's not how it happened. And I kept kind of like winding my way through their questions, trying to make all... I'd spent a week in the police station in Korea after this crime, seeing all of 
all the crime scene photos. I had seen the crime scene itself. We'd stayed in the hotel room, and so all these pieces had been put together for me to recreate what they wanted me to be saying. So, so day three, you end up signing this false confession. Well, the second day, they had the confession. And so that night, um, I know it sounds crazy, I started like making it more mine or making it more real or making it more believable even to myself. And so on the third day, we met back, and they wanted me to narrate that confession, and they wrote it down, still guided a little bit with their assistance. Like, well, what did, didn't you say something about, um, I think there was a rag, didn't you say something about a rag? And so then I would fill that in, and then I signed that confession, and that's the one that they submitted for me to be arrested. It sounds to me like there's elements here of Stockholm Syndrome too, no? Yes, they didn't just manipulate her compliance, they manipulated her memory. It's a form of brainwashing. And, you know, I think what happened here is the hardest type of false confession for anybody to understand. It's one thing to argue that I can coerce you by stress, by promises, by threats, real or implied, to agree to confess to something you didn't do. It's a whole other game to argue that I can not only get you to confess, I can get you to believe in your guilt. And yet those internalized false confessions throughout history there are several high-profile cases like it. When I heard what was done to Kenzie and the way she internalized the belief in her guilt to a point where I read an account, Kenzie, where you said it, it was like I have two memories. One I think is the real one in color with voices and the other is kind of a black and white film, I, I think was how you put it. Yeah, like stills being put together. Whereas the other one, like you have the emotions attached to them, you know what it felt like. It's more colorful. The other one had like clouds around it. As I said, still images being put together, like photos. The images that I had in my head from what they had worked their way through the confession didn't feel like something. It still didn't feel like something that I would ever do, but I didn't understand how could I confess to something that I didn't do. I gotta ask, when in between day one and day two, or day two and day three, or at what point did you call your dad or your mom or somebody that you trust and say, this is going crazy. What's I, I don't know what to do here. I need your help. Uh, my father and I didn't have the best relationship, but he was in Florida and my mom was in Thailand. I didn't have anyone to call. Well, so you're really all alone. I mean, that's a, it's a tough thing to face no matter how much support you have. But that I think that obviously contributed to it because I have to believe that if you had, especially, you know, parents, you know, who were educated as you did, I would certainly hope that, that they would have intervened, but this is really the perfect storm. And did they ask you not to talk to anyone between days? or after On the third day after the confession, they asked me not to talk about it to anyone because they didn't even know if I could be, if anything could happen with this. The FBI, they then had to go to Korea with the confession and say, hey, we have a confession. What do you want to do with this? Do you want this person to come back to Korea to go to trial to possibly face you know, time for a crime that was committed on your soil. Um, come to find out, they didn't really even have permission to come and speak with me. It was still a Korean case, and they shouldn't have been talking to me. Um, so after the confession, that's why it took me um, about three weeks to get arrested, because everything took so long, asking for permission, coming back and saying, well, why were you even talking to her? And so I wasn't arrested until February 28th, even though this interrogation or questioning happened February 6th. 
And in that time, you didn't talk to parents, friends, counselor, lawyer. That's amazing. So all those external reality cues that will normally rein you in, she didn't have those. No. My my friends knew that I was upset. I mean, after the confession, they gave me a bottle of water and a Snickers bar. And so I'm holding on this Snicker for hours. And I went to a friend's house, and I was just sitting on their couch. Um, But I couldn't tell them. Um, I mean, here you are, a young girl. 19. Right. Overwhelmed with three FBI agents, right? And when you say FBI, I think all of us feel like, whoa, like FBI still carries that connotation, even while we know they're flawed human beings like everyone else. But they're FBI agents. We want to believe in the FBI. We want to believe that they are, you know. Good. Yeah. You know, like. Honorable. Higher standard, everything else, right? Um, But we know from when Saul and I were talking, we were all talking about this before we came in the studio. We know from examples like the Madrid bombing and others that. Important to to note that in the Madrid bombing case, when they ended up arresting a lawyer from Oregon, and the FBI claimed they had their man and the fingerprints matched and all this other stuff, and it turned out he'd never been to Madrid, and he was acquitted. They can be as dead wrong as anyone, and there's tons of proof of this now. I mean, there's that study that came out of, of several years ago, right, about the hair analysis. Yes. And do you want to talk about that for a second? Because I think while we're on the subject of FBI, let's get that off our chest. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. When when police, including the FBI, form a judgment, a presumption of guilt, it biases the way they view other kinds of evidence. And in fact, there's a whole lot of research now that psychologists have done in the laboratory and in the field showing that when you bring forensic examiners in and insert a presumption of guilt or presumption of innocence into their analysis, whether that analysis is to make a handwriting judgment or a fingerprint judgment or a judgment about tire tracks or bite marks, you can alter their judgment by giving them contextual information. Do those two stimulus patterns match? Well, if the suspect confessed they did, and so what happened in Kenzie's case in some ways is even worse. There was no physical evidence that linked her. In fact, there was every indication that there were one or two men involved in this murder. Male voices were heard screaming at about the time of the murder. A male was seen running from the motel with blood on his pants at about that time. There was every indication that this was a crime involving a man. To go back to Kenzie a year later because they failed to solve the crime just made no sense. There was no physical evidence. When you look at uh, the photos of the crime scene and how bloody it was, it's inconceivable that that could have happened and not a trace of that blood remained on her clothing. Inconceivable. I was in the exact same clothes while I was in the police station in Korea from the night before. I was in the same clothes and I didn't have any blood on my pants or I wouldn't have been able to leave Korea in the first place. Um, Not to mention my shoes. I only had one pair of shoes with me in Korea, and I was wearing them the entire time. I was in the police station and with the Army CID, and they still let me leave the country. And only a year later did they come back and talk to me. So there was no physical evidence. There were no witnesses. Kenzie had no background of violence. She was a class A student uh, aspiring to be a teacher. There was absolutely no basis for suspicion when they called her out of the blue to talk to her in West Virginia. And not only was there, I mean, when you say there's an absence of evidence, there actually was evidence in the opposite direction, right? I mean, you could say that if there's no blood on your clothes and you're accused of beating someone to death, that should be dispositive, right? That should actually be like, okay, well, let's rule her out and keep it moving and go find out who did this. And just for the record, Korean police working with Army investigators, because there were a lot of military guys 
in the bars that night and nearby that motel. So the army investigators became involved along with Korean police, and they did dismiss Kenzie as a suspect. It was over when she went home. It was one year later when the FBI became involved that suddenly everything changed. Do you think that anyone or all three or, or none of the FBI agents believed going into that room that she was guilty? The human mind is an interesting thing. Um, I'm not a mind reader. I, I don't know whether they were cold-heartedly closing a case without any regard for the truth or whether they had convinced themselves through their investigation that, in fact, she must be the culprit. Uh, I, I don't know. The same mechanisms you described earlier that led the FBI to misidentify fingerprints in the Madrid bomber case led these agents to misidentify her as their suspect. And once a presumption of guilt kicks in, what happens next is anybody's guess. They can make that reality their own. And Kenzie, um, I know this is difficult for you to talk about even now, 18 years later. And I mean, I can understand that as well as someone can understand it who hasn't been through it. Um, but you were then arrested three weeks later mm -hmm. and taken to jail. Correct. Here you are one day, you're working with troubled kids, making your way in the world, uh, dealing with the normal stresses of a 20-year-old, I'm sure, you know, doing good, right? More so than I was when you were age. And, uh, and the next thing you know, you're in jail for something you didn't do. But you don't even know if you did it anymore. I mean, what? And, and you were there for 10 months, right? I was there for 10 months, um, which allowed me to, it was a long time, but it allowed me to kind of separate those memories from and get more confident in the fact that I know that the memories that I had going into that hotel room that day are the real memories. And I was able to separate a little bit from that confession. But it still wasn't complete even by the time of the extradition hearing. I still hadn't completely removed that understanding that the confession wasn't real. And I think at my hearing, I think I said something along the lines of not by the memories that I hold true when they asked me if the confession was real. So I still had some cloud around it. And so the extradition hearing itself that happened actually in October of that year was basically just asking, was Kenzie Snyder in Korea at the time? So it's not even a guilt or innocence. Yes, I was in Korea. So then you are sent over to Korea itself, and then you go through their legal proceedings. And it wasn't until I went back to Korea now after the extradition and they wanted me to reenact some of the images. The, the Korean police wanted me to go back to the hotel room and reenact the confession. And I walked into the hotel room. And at that point, I knew 100% that that confession was completely wrong. And I didn't do it because none of the still images that I had in my head matched that hotel room. And the way that confession worked out didn't, didn't make any sense anymore. And so at that point, I felt a lot more empowered, a lot more confident again, um, a lot stronger. And the Korean police didn't like that so much because they were really hoping I would reconfess in Korea. And they got mad at me because um, you had a 10-day period where you were talking to the police again and they were going over the evidence again and re-interviewing. Um, and they really wanted a confession then. Um, and they kept asking me, well, when did you do this? And I said, I didn't. I did not kill Jamie. And at one point, one of the um, police officers said, well, quit saying that. Say something different. Because I was, as I said, I felt, I felt more in control again at that point. 
and I refused, even though they told me that if I confessed again at this point, it would be easier on me, and I would probably only be looking at seven or eight years versus looking at the death penalty if I went to trial and I lost. But I didn't want to lose that control again. I have to look at myself every day in the mirror, and I couldn't lie again, and I knew that that confession was a lie. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host. Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So were you in custody in South Korea? Yes. And that's got to be, I I can't imagine. It's not. Being in jail in the United States, we don't treat our inmates like they're people. And so when I got to go to Korea, while it was different and not something I would want to do again, there's still a sense of humanity in their prisons and their jails. Hmm. Oh, yeah, we don't. That's well said. We don't treat our inmates like they're people. We flip a switch. As soon as you're in the system, you're no longer human. You're just a number now. Yeah. And it's weird because if if that's the right way to do it, then we have to ascribe to the theory that Americans are worse people than any other people in the world. Right. That we're among the most evil people in the world and that we need to be treated like subhumans. But it starts before you're convicted. 
Well, it even starts in the jails. If we believe that you're innocent and to proven guilty, then if you want to treat people like they're not people, that should be in prisons. If you're going to do it at all, I'm not saying you should. But in jail, supposedly you're innocent. So then why are we starting then? Well, you shouldn't. Yeah, it should never start. You but, shouldn't you know, start. I mean, and I think there's more and more awareness of that now, and there's a lot of movement with uh, correction officials going to European countries and learning about how they do it over there. And there's a reason why their recidivism rate is a tiny fraction of ours. It's because they treat their uh, people who are incarcerated over there like human beings, people. and they come out, and what do you know? They adapt better, and they end up not reoffending. And yeah, but that's like I said, that's a whole other subject. So. It's interesting that you went back to the room where this gruesome crime occurred, and that's what really crystallized in your mm -hmm. mind that you could not have done this. Um, it's it's just fascinating as to how the brain works and doesn't. You know, I'm, I'm reading this wonderful book called Burned. I mean, it's wonderful. It's terrible also, but it's an amazing book um, by a Pulitzer Prize-winning author named Humes. Um, and, and it's about an arson case, terrible case, Julian Taylor in um, California. But in it, he talks about memory and how it can be manipulated and you know one of the things I read it was either there in the New Yorker story um, about the Nebraska case recently yes. where six people falsely confessed to the brutal rape and murder of an old woman and many of them I think all but one actually came to believe that they did it even though DNA proved with an error rate they said in the article of one in 951 quintillion right. um, that the actual killer was a serial uh, rapist, murderer, but that there's a couple of them that still, even after an apology, an official apology from the Attorney General of Nebraska, which those are hard to come by, yeah. some of them still believe that they had something to do with this because they've been so totally brainwashed. But but I, what I did read is that I think they said that some statistic like 70% of people can be manipulated, I don't know how they figured this out, into believing that you know a false memory mm -hmm. is real. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a scary number. Under the right or wrong circumstances, you can get almost anybody to do that. You know, you're, you're referring to the Beatrice Six case, which is dramatic for a, a whole different reason. Kenzie eventually gave up on that memory. And I think it's interesting as to how it happened. But eventually, she came to grasp reality again. In the Beatrice Six, as you said, right on through being exonerated and receiving an apology, there was a precious quote when that first happened from one of those uh, exonerees. She said something like, wow, I guess I didn't do this. Because right to that moment, she continued to believe that she did it. And so that's how powerful that process can be. And when you look at a case like Kenzie's, they were drinking that night. There was a lot going on. It was confusing. It was a year ago now. And then the FBI comes in and they start to mischaracterize the evidence, and it's confusing to her. And she can't find a way to bridge their version of reality, their version of the facts, with her lack of memory of, of their version. She, she has a different memory. And I believe they actually assisted you in terms of how to bridge their version of the facts with your memory. Could yeah, you? they said the person who had done this may have been feeling really guilty, but they may not have any memory of it because it was too traumatic, and so their brain would have suppressed it. So to help them let go of that guilt and feel better, they should confess. Right, that's what they did in the Beatrix Six case. Many of those people, the, the accused, had been abused as children, and they said, you're blocking it out the same way you blocked out the abuse. I mean, they re they played on that, that, and that's a really sick way to go, right, to, to sort of Incredible. re trauma I mean I don't even know what the word is for right. that 
Um, but yeah, it's it's crazy because I think most people listening at home are probably or in their cars, whatever, are probably like, well, I could see confusing or having a, a memory lapse or or you know about some mundane type of thing. But it's really crazy to think how someone could be led to believe that they. Someone who's never done anything violent in their life could be led to believe that they beat and stomped their roommate to death. That is really scary. And we know the malleability of memory and the, mal- right. and, and the influence, what you were talking about before, which I think is such an important point, and why we need to have you know, objective analysts at every phase of testing, forensic testing, et cetera, et cetera, is that we know from every area of life, right, if you... Even when it comes to, like, I saw a movie about uh, wine. I think it was Bottle Shock or something, right, where they did that test where they blindfolded some world-famous sommeliers, and they gave them, like, $7 wine, and they gave them, like, the top wine from Italy or France, and they couldn't tell which was which. Some of them couldn't tell if it was white or red with the blindfold because they told them. And so we know that that wine tastes... Um, and I'll get letters from the, the Vintners Association, <laughs> right? But we know that wine tastes about as good as you expect it to, right? And we know that Tylenol works better than regular aspirin if you know it's Tylenol, yeah. right? Yeah. And here I come with another lawsuit. You'll have to defend me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, two of the most persuasive pieces of quote-unquote evidence that can be and are presented in courtrooms thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of times a day are confessions, and even more so eyewitness identification. That's not the case here. Ironically, those are two of the most unreliable forms of uh, evidence that there can be. So I guess what I want to ask is for everyone that's listening, and people have heard me say this before, everyone that's listening to us right now, at some point in the future is going to get a jury duty notice. And after they get over the initial grumpiness about having received that thing in the mail, they're going to hopefully go and show up and do their duty. And we know that there have been cases like Jeffrey Deskovic's where there were jurors who were swayed by his false confession, so much so that they disregarded scientific proof that was presented at his original trial that proved without any doubt that he could not have committed this brutal rape and murder of a 15-year-old girl, and they convicted him anyway. So that's an extreme case. But Four jurors, when they're in a courtroom and there's a confession and, they, and the, they're up there and they're saying nothing else this defense attorney says matters because this person confessed and therefore you have to convict. How can somebody who's not a psychologist or a trained expert in criminal justice, how can they interpret that information? How can they make a better decision? They need to understand what the sound and sight of a false confession really is. For example, here's one single statistic that should scare the hell out of everybody. And it is the fact that 95% of known false confessions taken right out of the DNA exoneration case files of the Innocence Project, 95% of known false confessions contained facts about the crime that were spot on accurate that the public didn't know about. And so what happens when a jury comes into the courtroom and they've got a defendant who said, I'm innocent, they coerced my statement. The jury can understand the notion of coercion, but they ultimately come down to this question. Well, he says he's innocent, but then how did he know those things? Well, you know what? They don't know how he knew those things unless they can see an entire recording from start to finish of every transaction between the police and the suspect. In Kenzie's case, 
the FBI agent's account of what happened in those three days, neglected to mention that they told her about repression and blacking things out. They neglected some of the details that a jury would need to know to evaluate that statement. So I think a jury needs to know that unless you're watching the entire process, not just the final production that is scripted and rehearsed for public consumption, but unless they see the hours and hours off camera that preceded that, they can't possibly be competent to make a judgment of that confession. They need to demand everything. And if police in one of those states that requires or doesn't require recording had failed to record the interrogation, the jury should react with an ultra degree of suspicion. They need to ask themselves, why don't I see this process? If the police are proud to show their interrogation work, why don't I get to see how that statement was crafted? Because unless the jury can see the whole thing, they're just not in a position to evaluate the statement. They're just not. Right, and we see that in the uh, the amazing Netflix series now, The Innocent Man, um, where Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot are still in prison over three decades later, and we only see the part of the confession that they want us to see. Exactly. Um, but we know what went on now, we know. It's too late to help them, uh, right. unfortunately, but it happens too often. And, you know, New York State resisted for the longest time recording interrogations. They said it was too expensive. Yes. Expensive? Expensive. <laughs> expensive. It's free. It's free. It's literally free. It's so, free. But you just hear these things and you go, wait. I, I know we're in an audio only situation, but my impulse is to pull my phone out of my pocket, put it on the table and say, there, we can do it now. Yeah, and, you know, there's that movie as well, False Confessions, that both Saul and I are in, which I encourage people to look up. It profiles four false confession cases, and it, it really shows you down and dirty how terribly flawed this process is. And at the end of the day, if you don't know, you have to acquit, because it says so in the Constitution, not because I think so, but because it says so in the Constitution. They have to prove guilt without a reasonable doubt. That's not the standard that we hold anymore. It doesn't seem like that, that it, it doesn't hold up in the justice system. And, you know, and of course, there's that quote, wasn't it Benjamin Franklin that said it's better that 100 guilty men go free than that an innocent should suffer? William Blackstone. Oh, William Blackstone. <laughs> Damn, I've quoted that on the podcast before. <laughs> William Blackstone said that, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and it's certainly, um, again, with, with Kenzie here, living proof that it can happen to anyone. I mean, strangely enough, fortunately for you, the Korean justice system functioned, and we can't prove this, but probably better than ours would have. So now we get to the the vindication, right? Um, and you had three of those, right? Yes. I mean, you, you, they just kept stamping your thing like, nope, nope, right. nope. You didn't right? do this. <laughs> I mean... And I mean, how did that feel? And, you know, and, and how did it feel coming home? And it felt great to get the, you know, um, the first hearing, um, the judge was saying it and I had to wait for the translator. So the, the people in the courtroom had reacted, but I didn't know how or why they were reacting. Like, is this in my favor or not? And then I heard the translator said innocent. And it wasn't even, they did, she didn't say not guilty, she said innocent. And I don't know if that's a translation error, but it felt so good to hear that, those words. Um, but I still, my mom came rushing at me. She was able to be there in Korea at the time. And I went to her um, and we got a hug, but the courtroom, the bailiff kind of had to separate us because I still had to go back to the jail, this time not in handcuffs, but I wasn't really free for another 12 hours. They had to wait for a fax from the courthouse. So when I got back to the jail... 
after my innocence verdict, everyone was asking me, well, how long did you get? How? And I said, no, I'm going home. And they're like, what do you mean you're going home? Like, people don't go home from here. People shouldn't be in jail that didn't do a crime. Why do you mean you're going home? And it's like, I didn't do it. I get to go home. And so um, I got to say goodbye to the people that I'd spent, um, spent about four and a half months in a room with 15 other women. And so we formed some bonds and we got to say goodbye to them. And then um, at 10.04 p.m. on June 19th, I got out. So there were three separate verdicts, though. Were you held in between those verdicts? I was not held in between, but I didn't. I technically didn't have a visa. Um, I wasn't allowed to work, um, and I was in limbo. The prosecutor went ahead and appealed the case. I think it's they're just expected to. I don't know if it's an honor thing. Um, and I said I wasn't allowed to work. My mom did come to the country during that time, and so she got a work visa. And I had there was a pastor who would visit me on Tuesdays. Every day we had seven minutes visits, and. He would come in uh, every Tuesday, and we would talk. And when I got out, he was really, really supportive, he and his family. And he found someone who donated an apartment to us, donated our rent. Otherwise, I would be in immigration jail. And then October, I got another innocent verdict. And then it was appealed to the Supreme Court. And at that point, I'm still in Korea. Uh, they had my passport. I didn't have permission to leave. And my brother was getting married at the end of December. And I asked permission if I could go home. And they said if I would sign a letter that would waive extradition if I was found guilty, they would let me go home. So I wrote that letter, and then it was still almost three years later that I finally got the official Supreme Court of South Korea said that I was innocent. So I'm in limbo all that time. You were in limbo in in South Korea for? I was in limbo for about six months in South Korea and then went back home and was still in limbo in the States waiting on a verdict, not knowing if I would have to go back to Korea. Um, I had a gap in my work history, so finding a job was incredibly hard. All of my credit cards had defaulted, maxed out and defaulted. Student loans had defaulted. Right, so there was more more trouble awaiting you. And yeah. yeah, then that is a very strange state of sort of being in the twilight zone, right? You're over there in this eastern country where you can't work, so you can't make money, and you can't go home, and you can't do anything. And like, I was an official tourist. Yeah, that's all I could do. But you would have had to sleep on the streets, or like you said, go to immigration jail, if not for the fact of, of the kindness of strangers and the fact that your mom was able to be supported the way she was. That's Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host. Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. 
I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get to the to the closing, and I want to hear about what you're doing now and how you're doing now and, you know, all that stuff. Um, but I want to ask Saul and Patty, when I started doing this podcast, my goal was to help to prevent as many wrongful convictions going forward as I can by teaching people or educating people, I should say, as to how and why they happen and to give people an idea of what to look for if they're on a jury and what some of the do's and don'ts if you're arrested or even picked up and not arrested as Kenzie was. So, um, you know, being that we have two experts in the room, I would love to get your take on both of those two topics. And together we can hopefully prevent the next Kenzie from going through what she did. So uh, do you want to go first? Sure. I think that's a noble and very important mission. I think one, one thing we learned from Kenzie's case, and this gets at a strength of the Korean justice system that in contrasts to a serious weakness of the American system. She had the surge of relief when they took her back to the crime scene. She looked and she said, whoa, that's not the memory they gave me. That doesn't fit. In Korean law, if a suspect confesses to police and recants the confession and won't reenact it and won't restate it to the prosecutor, it didn't happen. And yet in the U.S., When behind closed locked doors without recording, police claim that a suspect confessed and then that suspect immediately recants the confession and won't restate it and won't plead guilty and won't reenact it, that suspect has done already the damage that will get him or her convicted. And so I think there is buried in this story about comparing two systems, a problem with the American system, the only way Kenzie could have stepped out of that situation intact was to invoke her right to silence, to invoke her right to an attorney. That's all she could have done because once she is alleged to have confessed, even if she recants it and will not restate it, the damage has been done. Patty? Well, I'll touch on the other topic about what should we do to make people aware. Um, I'm trying to figure that out. 
and I'll report back in a year with concrete findings. But I think just telling more stories like this so that, number one, people accept that it's a thing that happens more often than you probably think. And just focusing on the person, I think, on a person-to-person basis rather than on trends because it becomes clear once you hear each individual story, it's a lot more clear as to how that confession happened than speaking in statistics and things. So I think focusing on the individual stories is really important. That's my hypothesis. It's a scary system, and, you know, we're here to, to try to, you know, help turn the tide. And uh, media plays an important part in it. You're studying that now. What have your studies uh, so far shown about the effect of podcasts on an opinion of civilians? We're just starting. So we started off um, looking at Netflix documentaries. But so far we are seeing that there is a certain type of person that's, number one, likely to watch these kinds of documentaries to begin with and also know more about interrogations. We're trying to figure out as to whether these people are just more knowledgeable and then they watch these documentaries or whether the documentaries are doing the educating. So um, podcast is the next step. (laughs) So I don't know yet. And, And actually, you brought up my exact dissertation question earlier in that question you posed about why is it that people can be presented with scientific findings or logic, but still kind of hold on to that gut reaction towards a confession? So you can tell someone, and I maybe there's research where you give them all the information about wrongful convictions, and it makes them more critical of evidence, but it doesn't necessarily change their overall verdict decisions. So I'm trying to figure out why? Well, it's good that you're doing the work. And, you know, I think, too, we should mention that, um, you know, studies, uh, my friend Josh Dubin was involved in a study that showed that there's an inherent bias among normal people who become jurors, that if they see someone presented to them as a defendant, whether it's in the box or whatever it is, 80% of people have a natural assumption that they're guilty or they wouldn't be there. And we have to correct that because Mm -hmm. there shouldn't be any presumption. You should come in as a blank slate Mm -hmm. and understanding how often these things go wrong. So before we turn to, to closing remarks, Kenzie, how how are you? What's going on now? How are you doing? You seem like a like a little orb of light, but I, you know, <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> I'm not a mind reader. I'm not even a psychologist. I'm the only one here that isn't. No, overall, I'm good. I'm good. Um, I do have hard days and hard times a year, February and March, with the confession and the the murder itself. That's a hard time of year. But overall, I'm good. Um, I'm a mom now. I have a six-year-old boy. What's his name? His name is Garrick. I get emotional talking about him because I think about how this could affect him, how my past still to this day, 18 years later, will still like bump into things. Um, people will hear about it or Google it or they'll see it. Um, sometimes the, the show's on syndication and it'll affect how people treat me and some friendships have been lost because of it. And sometimes there's some trickle down effect to him. Um, but overall, overall good. Um, it's, it's hard trying to rebuild and people have difficulty getting past the confession. Even if I was found innocent, that doesn't matter. They, they still think, why would you have said, said you did something that you didn't do? Especially, why did you kill your friend? And so it kind of follows you around. Like you have to monitor your behavior all the time. You can never get too angry. You can never get too upset. You have to, um, 
when do you tell this with new people that you've met? Like, do you, you have to gauge your relationship with them. Am I going to see them again? Do they need to know about this? If you wait too long, then they feel like you violated their trust because why didn't you tell this to me before, before you came into my house, before I saw you every day at school? Um, so you're always having to monitor your reactions and, and your relationships. When I first talked to you about whether you want to come out and do this, you, you said something about your son mm. and the loss of a play date. Can, can you say <laughs> something about that? Because I, in a funny way, I think that just says so much. It, it was one of those things. Um, I'd arranged a play date. And so my son had gone over to their house and they were playing. And it's, you know, gauging when do I tell this to someone. And now I was in their home. And I felt that I know if someone came into my house, I, I would want to know who is coming into my home. So I had shared this story a little bit, and um, that person was no longer available for playdates. Just wouldn't return phone calls or texts or messages. Just stopped. Well, I actually have one more question. Um, are you bitter? I'm not. I think life is too short to be bitter. I do get angry at times that they feel that they have the right to do this to someone's life because it's not just my life that's affected. That's also the Penich family who hasn't gotten the proper closure that they need. Um, this is a person out there who has killed someone and is not in jail or prison for having committed that crime. And I, I think, I'm not, I'm not bitter. I get angry about it, though. But I'm not letting what they did to me ruin the rest of my life. We're glad you're doing well and... Um, wish you all the best for the future. And now um, we come to my favorite part of the show, which is, and you're familiar with this since you listen to the show, so you're ready. A lot of people come <laughs> on and never heard it, so I, this takes them by surprise. But this is the part of the show where I thank each of you, um, Kenzie, of course, um, Kenzie Snyder, and uh, Patty Sanchez and Professor Saul Kasson for being here and taking your time and sharing your thoughts. And now I get to stop talking and listen. And so I'm going to go um, in order. I guess we'll start with Patty and Saul and then you, Kenzie, for just final thoughts. Final thoughts. Understand that humans are flawed and you are normal, no less flawed than general people. Um, I've noticed there's a lot of, of people consuming these things saying like, oh, yeah, I would always be able to tell apart something or like I'd be able to tell true and false. And I think we all just humble ourselves a little bit and admit that we're all vulnerable and we're all susceptible to being um, manipulated and being okay with that and understand it and so that we can be aware and always get a lawyer. Saul? That's good. The always get a lawyer part <laughs> I would have led with, but... Um, <laughs> You know, f false confessions, uh, I've been looking at them for God knows how long. I'm not going to tell you because I don't want to reveal my age. But um, it wasn't that long ago when people said, doesn't happen. And I would say, never? Never. Doesn't happen. I would never confess to a crime I didn't commit. Now, I think some of that is changing. The problem is that what people see and hear a confession, what they're seeing and hearing is a story. It's a narrative. This is what I did. This is how I did it. This is why. This is what it felt like. This is what the victim may have looked like or said. It's a story from start to finish. Kenzie's is no exception. If you read her so-called confession, it is a narrative 
from start to finish. It's chronology. That is the sight and the sound of a false confession. And so it's very important for people to understand that absent corroborating evidence taken independent of that confession and absent seeing the process by which that confession was taken, you are in no position to make a judgment. And the reason I think that's important is Kenzie's case illustrates something disturbing. 18 years ago, she gave a confession. She was then acquitted. She was then acquitted again. She was then acquitted again. The fact that 18 years later, she is feeling the effects of the stigma that has not detached itself from her. She gave a confession, but she has never been convicted of a crime. It doesn't matter. To some people, she is guilty by virtue of the fact that she confessed, and they will never see her actual innocence. People need to get past it. People, And that's why I think Patty's proposed studies looking at whether or not a podcast, for example, can raise public awareness and make people more discerning jurors is so important because we're flailing a bit trying to find ways to raise public awareness. I've been working top down trying to convince the courts, the judiciary, to reform the system in ways that make sense. But you know what? That's just too slow and there are more victims every day. And so maybe what we need to do is work from the bottom up and create a groundswell of public awareness and a groundswell of support. You know, I think Making a Murderer, The Central Park Five, The Confession Tapes, The Amanda Knox Documentary, your podcast series on wrongful convictions, those are, I think, essential tools for raising public awareness and making people more critical consumers of their criminal justice system. Kenzie? I was hesitant to do this podcast because of how it could affect my life now. But Saul had mentioned something, and he said maybe a future juror would hear this. And I wanted to help someone, keep them from this happening to them. I think that's important. The biggest thing that I would say is get a lawyer. I know everyone thinks it's a false confession. I would never confess to something that I didn't do, and I know it sounds crazy. But no one goes into the room with law enforcement expecting to leave with a confession to a crime they didn't commit. So get a lawyer. Law enforcement agents, they're doing their job. They're not your friend. Don't trust them. Make sure you have a lawyer on your side. And uh, before we close, Saul, I want to do, sadly, I want to do an in memoriam because um, there's a case that was profiled in the movie that you and I both appeared in called False Confessions. Um, And can you talk a little bit about, because it actually has an eerie resemblance to Kenzie's case and that he was never convicted. He was actually in jail for almost exactly the same amount of time in America anyway. Yes. Um, He was an exchange student. Yes. And he died, you know, recently, uh, you know, you could say he died of a broken heart. But can you talk about that case a little bit? Yeah. His name was Malte Thompson. He was 20 or 21 years old when he came to the U.S., to New York, to work as a teacher in a preschool, a high-end preschool near the United Nations. He came from a family of teachers and educators, just Kenzie was aspiring as well to be a teacher. And some way through the school year, another employee went to the school and said they saw him touching the children inappropriately, which seemed inconceivable given the layout of the room and the fact that there are always multiple adults uh, at any given moment. But they watched for a while and saw absolutely nothing. Turns out that the person who accused him of that had made similar allegations earlier in the year about others. So the school proceeded to dismiss her. Uh, She went to the police department and she reported it. The police ended up in Malte Thompson's door early one morning, about 6 a.m., picked him up, interrogated him for seven or eight hours, 
and took from him a confession. The interrogation was not recorded on audio or on video, and the result of that seven or eight hours of off-camera interrogation was that they convinced Malte Thompson to go to the district attorney's office and give a videotaped statement. And the opening of his videotaped statement, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like, it has come to my attention that I've done a bad thing. Apparently, they told him, falsely, that they had surveillance video footage of him touching the children inappropriately. That was a lie. But he's from Denmark, and he doesn't know that police are allowed to lie. Because in Denmark, as in most other Western civilized countries, police are not allowed to lie. But he was delivered that lie, and so, like Kenzie, he had to presume that this must be true. I don't recall doing it. And so he gave a confession to the district attorney on camera. He was sent to Rikers Island for several months while the case worked its way through the system. Nobody would corroborate, none of the children would corroborate, and they had to ultimately drop the charges. He went home to Denmark. He had a lawyer who settled with the city for some, I don't know what the settlement figure was. And you and I saw him in the film. If you see the film, what you will see is an individual who is depressed. And this was years later. And so the fact that he died recently, according to the family, he died of a heart attack. At 27 years at old. At 27 years old is just sad beyond belief. But you can see in the movie he can't even break open a smile. This affected him and had never left six, seven years later. I don't know what was going through his mind. I, I don't know what goes through Kenzie's mind. But I know that people who are induced into giving confessions to crimes they didn't commit are constantly self-reflecting, what was I thinking? What was I doing? How could that have happened? And that's what makes these stories so important to tell. Rest in peace. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Wrongful Conviction. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongfulconviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. 
Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love at First Listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 